Well, good morning. Uh, thank you all for coming. And uh, so that uh, the title, the, what I'm sharing this morning, I, what is it about life that makes death or loss so hard to talk about? Which uh, it's really true. Uh, and I've got a packet over there of more than information than you probably want. Uh, that also, uh, to answer your question, I found there was a, a study done uh, recently that's about the five myths about grieving. And it was, it was kind of taking the Kubler-Ross approach, you know, of uh, uh, denial and bargaining and everything. That, that actually was applied to our own death. That when we thought about our own death, that's how we dealt with our own death, was denial that we would, and then bargaining and all that. But that actually, uh, that there are things to say. So it does list like two or three things that might be things to say with someone who's uh, lost uh, besides just being with and staying with. So I hope you'll find that interesting. And then just various things I've collected on life and loss that you might find helpful and just read through it. And there's a reading list at the back uh, as well of various things that you might find helpful. None of this is um, exhaustive or exclusive. It's just things, and you'll see someone dated literally the year after Alyssa died I started talking about this probably my grieving process too, too soon talking about Alyssa and sharing in public forums before I really had gone through all my grieving um, so anyway this is a long time past that now but here we are um, the well the question I'm going to ask y'all first this morning and that uh, in the bulletin there's a sermon, or this class, I teach this class this morning just off the sermon and the quotes here on the front of the bulletin. Uh, but here's the, well, I should tell you one other thing. I coach cross-country and track and field. My job is to inflict suffering. <laughs> Literally. If they don't suffer, they don't get better. And they don't like to suffer that much. And so I have to do things to make them suffer in a way and then help them to recover. Because the formula is... Work plus recovery equals growth. Work hard, let the body adapt, because it's not the hard work that makes us better athletes, it's the recovery from the hard work when the body adapts that makes us better. And so my corollary to that this morning was that life challenges plus plus prayer equals personal growth or spiritual growth. We're going to meet life challenges and they're going to wear us out and then we take time to pray and to be alone and to contemplate what it is we've experienced and we have growth. Does that make sense? And so, as Colleen said it this morning too, the more we prepare for what's coming, the better we have a chance of handling it. And so denial or avoidance of things, and we're going to get to that, is detrimental to us. So here's my question for you this morning. Do you know when you're suffering loss? Do you know when you're suffering loss? No? Yes? Yes. And so what are the symptoms you experience? Because a lot of times, people don't know that they're suffering loss. They're just mad, or they are acting out, or depressed, but they don't know they're suffering loss. They, they are just wandering around in it. So do you know when you're suffering loss? It's important to have a sense of that. Because, and knowing what the symptoms are, um, they, they're, um, 
you know, athletes come to the, to the practice and they're not having a good practice and they're struggling along, I don't know what's wrong with me. And like, well, how's your sleep? I didn't sleep at all last night. How's school going? I failed a test. How's your relationship going? We broke up. <laughs> Pick any one of those or any of the thousand others that come up on a day-to-day basis and it makes it hard to work out. But they don't know that they're suffering loss. They just know, I don't feel right. Something's wrong. What's wrong with your workout? I'm tr- it's hard. It's your fault that I feel bad. You need to give me better workouts. I didn't race well because you didn't train me right. Or a list of excuses versus going, I'm dealing with things that are making it hard now. And so I, so I deal in the suffering thing of literally figuring out how kids are doing in their life. And the training and the racing are the fun stuff. As hard as that might, as funny as that might sound, because that's the, we know what's happening. It's a five mile race. I got to finish as fast as I can. I'm running the mile, stay to the left and hurry back. At the end, I see what the results are. But getting to the line and getting into the race is very difficult. And so in every race, there's a critical moment. That moment when the body says, are you kidding me? No way, I'm going one more step hard. And the mind has to say, I don't care what you feel, we're going. And I watch it and you can tell when athletes choose and they choose every single time. And when they get so good that they don't have to think about it, they just respond and move, it gets really easy. But in life, we do the same thing. We hit the critical point of life and loss and we, don't, we haven't made up our mind who we are in Christ or who we are as an individual and who, how we're living our lives and we, we fall back and then those are all these reasons we're going to give to ourselves why it happened without dealing with the actual thing. Okay, that's a lot of stuff. So correct me, question me because we're going to go on because this is going to be the how do we deal with life and loss suggestions and ideas as we go. Um, James McDonald's quote, suffering always reveals idols of the heart. When athletes tell me, I just couldn't go. I don't know what's wrong. I said, well, you're afraid. No, it's not that. It's not that. It's not that. I have cancer. I have a disease. Something's wrong with me. Don't let it be me. Now, they don't say it quite that loud, but you might as well. They deny, they deny, they deny, because I don't want it to be something I have to deal with. I want it to be something you have to deal with. As one of my athletes said one time, if you would stand at the 200 and tell me to go at the end, that would really help. I said, not going to do it. If you don't know it's time to go at that point, what good is it going to do for me to make a fool of myself yelling at you and thinking, everybody thinking I'm abusing you? You have to make up your own mind to lean into your life, and racing just puts it all on the line. It's clear as day that there's something going on here. So we talked about suffering this morning in church, and I want to, uh, and we talked about Christian suffering, and uh, David French, a, a writer I really like, Christian guy, lawyer, Iraqi uh, veteran, he's on a thing called the, um, the Morning Dispatch, and he has a podcast, and he's writing every week the third rail, and he talks about this thing about Christians feeling like they're suffering in our country. And he says, by law, we have never been more free 
in the history of the world to be a Christian in this country. And he fought cases for students getting kicked out of sororities and fraternities and out of school for their faith and changed laws. He said, there's no better time, safer time to be a Christian. Well, well I feel like I'm, I'm suffering. And he said, being mocked is not suffering. It doesn't feel good, but that's not suffering. Does that make sense? You can feel bad, but someone making fun of Christians or writing bad things about Christians is not suffering. It's an opinion that we can feel hurt by. But is it us being oppressed? Now I can't be a Christian because someone mocked me? doesn't change anything. Okay, that's way off to the side, politics and all that stuff. So let's talk about life and loss. Um... Last week I talked about loss, grieving, suffering, recovery. So, um, and you've got a, the front pages of the handout I gave you outline this. And I'm, I've got mine numbered. Yours is not numbered. So uh, I'm just going to go through this. And the things that I talk about in here are um, five things. Faith, family, fellowship, friendship, and freedom. Uh are the things that I feel like helped us, Allison and I, get through the losses that we have incurred in our lives. And again, remember, all of us have incurred losses. I asked you last week to remember the first sense of loss you ever had in your life. And that loss is loss. A sense of loss is loss. The little kid losing the, the uh, balloon feels the same as an adult losing their wallet. It's something they wanted and now it's gone. So faith, and, and just it's on that paper that you have in front of you, in God to enable life. God is with us all the time. Family to nurture life's pursuits and being close to that nuclear uh, group. Fellowship of church and community and nature to enhance life, being able to be out and around people or just out. Uh, I had one day this week where I had a big thing going on and I actually canceled an appointment with someone I didn't know that I was supposed to meet for the first time, I said, I can't meet you this week and, and put it off. And I got in my car and I drove and went to a place and took a walk in a big park by myself so that I could just be alone to think. And then I went to a coffee shop and read and wrote what I needed to do. But I needed to, to take the time to move away from what I was supposed to do or what was expected of me to do the things I needed to do. And the first thing was to take care of me. And then uh, friendships that are enduring, deep, and rich in sharing life. And we've enjoyed a family group with two other couples at Ranks and Elliott's for working on 40 years now where we meet every week and we, we've raised eight kids together. It's been unique for us being all immigrants to California uh, to find each other at this church and then have that be our support uh, family through everything. And then freedom of spirit and mind to see God's grace in our lives and in the lives of others. So embracing the suffering and letting it be part of what we do. Uh, someone uh, brought up the point, said when Alyssa was sick, why, this, why is God letting the smellies suffer? And she said, why not? Why should they not suffer and other people suffer? So we shouldn't be surprised by suffering. It's part of life. Uh, it's, life is difficult. Uh, or the junior high thing, life is, what's the word? Uh, life is hard and then you die. From a junior high perspective, that's all it is. Every day is a little is suffering and death at the end of the day. 
It's unfair. So here's my, here's, I'm going to make the first point. We tend to deal with death or loss. Let's just talk about loss. Death is the ultimate seeming loss in the same manner as we deal with our daily lives. So think about how you live from day to day and how you deal with things going on. And do you know that you're, when you're suffering loss and what the symptoms are? And is it pretty subdued and you just kind of, ah, it's just a feeling, I'm not going to deal with that. Until all of a sudden we hit that critical moment like in the race and something happens that puts us to the edge. And then it, it boom, and if you look at it, you go, wow, I, I feel that often, but I never deal with it. But this one I have to deal with, and it feels a lot the same. So how, how, who are we on a day-to-day basis? Uh, they said about 17 to 25% of, the, of people have a, uh, the ability to, un, in crisis to deal with it positively or to focus in on what needs to be done. It's kind of a, I don't know, I think Nancy, you probably know that better than me as a counselor, but the, the, the ability to just lean into something and see what needs to be done and do it and kind of ignore one's own needs to go what has to do for the whole group. And that's what makes good commanders in the field. Um, that's what helps people deal with big stresses and uh, life things. Uh, and we, we kind of look to those people because they do things, they say or do something that just kind of puts it in perspective uh, as much as possible and allows us to say, okay, I can do this. I'll follow your lead on this. Uh, in the tea fire, I was in charge of being at the gym when the students, that was our evacuation point. And so we had 500 students, 40 or 50 of them, and parents who were visiting. Uh, they weren't our students, they were visitors. And we had them in the gym. And there's a point that uh, we had a good plan, we had what we needed, we didn't realize the smoke was gonna come into the gym through the open vents, because that we couldn't close. And so I had to find a place to put all the asthmatics. But I knew that the closet inside, that the, uh, the uh, vents had been removed and everything, it was the one place where smoke wasn't necessarily going to be, so I jammed all these folks in this closet and closed the door and, uh, and went looking for other places to put them, and everything was full of smoke. Uh, but the other thing was just walking around the room and just, talk, just talking quietly and just being present so that people knew we were going to be okay. And the one woman who was standing in the middle of the floor just crying just needed to be hugged. So uh, we had, you know, the presence, and so personality plays a part in this, and, but we need to know who we are on a day-to-day basis before the crisis comes up. Um, Ken and Neil, who passed away from cancer, lovely lady, uh, wrote this right here in the middle, says, some are just a little more in tune with the probable ending of their season of, as she put it, life as we know it. It is an absolute privilege to be invited into a dying person's sacred space of their numbered days. That's at the extreme end of, no, people know they're going to die. But on a day-to-day basis, life and loss, being able to see one in ourselves that we're, that we're suffering or we're having a sense of loss, but also to see it in others and go to them. And uh, who should, I think it was C.S. Lewis, or anyway, um, that said if we saw a dog that was hurt, wouldn't we pick it up and hold it? So why wouldn't we do that with another person? And we have a tendency to stay away. Oh no, they don't want me near, or we're scared of it. What would I do? What can I do? 
And sometimes it's no more than just going up close enough to touch them or give a hug or just say, how are you? Now, I did this very poorly a lot of times. Uh, years ago, 40 years ago, we were on a trip with my mom and dad up the coast, and we went to this restaurant, and our waitress was quite harried and all, and I said, looks like you're having a hard day. And she said, well, thanks a lot for that. <laughs> okay, check my food before I uh, eat it. And at the end of the meal, when she brought the check, she said, thanks for noticing, I am having a hard day. Now, I don't know if it's appropriate for me to say that to someone I didn't know, but I did read the situation right, even if I maybe shouldn't have said that. But she did acknowledge it. And so sometimes it's just having people, giving them a chance to acknowledge that things are hard. That doesn't mean they have to stop and all. Sometimes you just need... Have you you've had that happen to you when someone just notices you're not doing well and how it revives you? You're going through loss, you're going through something, and you're handling it all by yourself, and someone just comes up and gives a little comfort, and you feel like, okay, I can keep going. I can get through this. David? I recommend that. You might have given her a little release valve, but thanks for that. You know? yep. Instead of somebody else. <laughs> that it's, um, yeah, it can be a dangerous moment. <laughs> so how do you deal with loss? Do you know who you are on a day-to-day basis? And uh, going back to... Again, I remembered names would be helpful, but it's never too late to become who we might have been, is the quote that I often go when people are saying, oh, I can't change that. Well, it's never too late. If, if, if people can accept Christ to, the, to their last breath, and even someone suggests to me now, then in that transition of the soul, can someone, we don't know, can someone go to Christ then? Well, if, they, if, if there's a possibility of someone turning to Christ at the last breath of their life, can't we make an adjustment in how we approach our life? It's, called, it's growth. Uh, and as I shared with you all about my mom, she never got relief from the pains of her life to the last breath. It just, and so that, what I saw in her face as I looked at her face in death was a peaceful look that I'd never seen before. I might be reading into it, uh, but she did suffer a lot with no full outlets of how to do that, how to take care of herself. So the ability to lean in and, and see those changes. And that's how C.S. Lewis became a Christian, as just a, reading things and acknowledging and changing something he was adamantly against, apparently. So uh, number two, are we preparing ourselves for our death? Or are we ignoring death by keeping busy? Are we preparing ourselves for losses and suffering? Are we ignoring them? by keeping busy? That's a personal question of how do you deal with life on a day-to-day basis? And Henry Now, and I take a lot of quotes from Henry Now, and this is from his book, Our Greatest Gift, and he writes about losing his mom, he writes about the difficulties of the relationship with his dad, he writes about his time of depression, which is a huge thing to write about in the 80s, uh, to admit that he was going through depression, how hard that was, um, and to own that. But are we preparing ourselves for what's coming, or are we in denial? You know, that sometimes we feel so, so much responsibility to be a Christian that we aren't real about things. And he said, are we helping each other to die, or do we simply assume we're always going to be here for each other? Will our death give new life, new hope, and new faith to our friends, 
or will it be no more than another cause for sadness? So, opposing questions, not necessarily answers. And so, in life and loss, and I think we, um, especially in, in the church and the Christian community, can put loss and we, we don't, if we're denying loss, we don't want to deal with life so much. If we just are kind of denying it, then we don't want to see it in other people either. And we don't want to go near it. And we keep a distance from people who are hurting for fear that that might be us. Uh, I, had a, I had a dad with one of my students one time was talking. We have a really nice meal. And he says, I do not want to be a problem to my son when I get older. I just want to go away and die somewhere. Because I don't want him to have to suffer through my suffering. And so I looked at him and I said, why would you do that? Why would you deny him the opportunity to care for you as you've cared for him up to now? And we didn't go much further than that. But he paused because it was, you know, he had to think, of, I felt like he had to think of it a different way. His son wasn't going to say anything. So I had a moment in there to, to just pose that question. Do we deny things or do we meet them head on? Um, the, the word grit, y'all have heard, there's a lot of talk about having grit. And so my definition for grit is go right into trouble. Go right into trouble. If there's a problem, you go to it. Now, with trepidation, often, and difficulty, but if we don't go to it and confront it, where is it going to go? It's going to follow us around or stay out in front of us. So we have to go after it. And sometimes we can't solve all issues and all problems, but... Go right into trouble means deal with things that are there. Uh, the, the, one, the feeling of that, I remember, is when uh, at, we're at our house and when Alyssa was in her last uh, time, last day, the whole family group stayed at the house that night. And someone was with Alyssa for a couple of hours all the time for the last two or three days, just with her. And I remember coming out of our bedroom and Nancy came down the hall and says, it's time which was she just wanted me to know and I felt like I was walking this way and I felt like as I I was moving backwards because I didn't want to go to the other end of that hall for what was coming and I kept moving but it was just that strange moment of meeting the reality right there that I knew was coming but it felt different but we but kept moving forward and uh, to be there, and I'd like to say handled it great and all. Allison did amazing. I was just overwrought by the situation, even stand, sitting close to Alyssa at that moment of her death, of not feeling worthy to be there, and feeling like I don't know, I, I can, don't know what I feel to this day about how I felt to be there close by while she passed away. I wasn't prepared for the moment. I just was willing to be in the moment. Allison, I thought, was prepared for the moment in a whole different way because of how she dealt with it. So, are we facing our losses? Are we facing our life and how we live? Um, so the third part of this and, uh, is facing our losses means avoiding a temptation to see life as an exercise and having our needs met. We are needy people. We want attention, affection, influence, power, and our needs seem never to be satisfied. We crave easy assurances. We like easy victories, growth without crisis, healing without pains, 
the resurrection without the cross. No wonder our communities seem organized to keep suffering at a distance, and people are buried in ways that shroud death with euphemism and ornate furnishings. And we tend to do that with daily losses in the same way. We tend to hold them away. Uh, It's a trite example, but Tom Cruise movie when he was the race car driver, and one of the guys had an accident and had an injury that he wasn't going to be able to drive again, and he ran to the bathroom and threw up because it was a reaction to, that could have been me. And if it was me, and he just had this convulsive reaction to the sense of, oh no, and then it's like, get away, I'm not going to see him, I'm not talking to him, it did not happen, it didn't happen, and went on his way. But it turns out, and when you watch the movie and Robert Duvall, his, his uh, race manager, is on him all the time because he is racing in fear. And so that's kind of this big thing, big powerful cars, a lot of noise and all the hype, but our lives are the same thing. We're running in fear, we're living in fear, and don't want to see what's out there. And so then when the push comes to shove, it's hard for us to engage with it because we just don't want to go there. Yeah, I so prayer wherever you're going, Lord, go with where that truck is going. Um, so anyway, um, I'll just read now in here. Much that is worthwhile comes only through confrontation. The unpleasant things, the hard moments, the unexpected setbacks carry more potential than we usually realize. Life's interruptions are often where God works best. In Christ, we see God suffering for us and calling us to share in God's suffering love for a hurting world. We must have patience with the suffering we often endure for ourselves and with others. I had a young man come in my office one time, and his grandfather, World War II vet, had died, and his dad wanted him to come home for the funeral. And he was busy with school, pre-med. He was on the team. Um, he just didn't want to have to deal with it. It was, it was a distraction. He was busy. I don't want to go home. I said, I know you don't, and I know you're busy. Here's our priority list, and family is uh, number two on that. I said, but here's the deal. You don't need to be there, but your father needs you to be there. So he's okay. And he went. And he came back later to say, it was the right choice. Now, what, he didn't know that till after. He couldn't know that till after. But I was glad he came and asked me about it and that we had some priorities about our team things uh, that I could point to so that he had a reason to choose it. Now, he still had to choose. I didn't say, if you don't go home, you're a bad Christian. Um, I just said, your dad needs you. If you would be going for that. How did I know that? Just the experience? I, get, I don't know. Yeah, it's... Well, because you live it and experience it. Um, and it's happened to me more than once. Good and bad. When, uh, when, uh, when, Alyssa, when Alice was pregnant with Alyssa, uh, it was, she was doing about three weeks, and so it was okay for me to go to Texas for, for track nationals. And the first day, one of our girls made All-American, and I called Allison up. I was all excited about it, and she was pretty quiet, and she said, the doctor says I'm five centimeters dilated and you should come home. And 
that was a call <laughs> that I needed to respond to. And, um, and I remember hanging up and calling my parents and bawling because I was afraid I was going to miss her birth. And also, I had another young man who had bombed on Thursday night in the 10,000 meters, a senior. I knew he would bomb. Um, just, but he didn't know I'd entered him in the marathon as well, which he was qualified for. And I told him about it, kind of as a sob. He said, I don't want to run the marathon. So it's Friday night. I'm getting in the car. He comes running out from the hotel. He said, I'm going to run the marathon tomorrow. I said, okay, where are your flats? Six minutes a mile and see what you can do the last six miles. Okay. Off we went. Nine o'clock the next morning, I got home. Allison, the baby, Alyssa hadn't come. Everything's okay. And we get a phone call at 9.30 in the morning. And it's Monty Mickley. I just got All-American in the marathon. Now, that was cool. And the way he did it was really cool. I, you don't need all this detail. But the best thing is what he said next. Is, That's the first thing in my life I've ever done by myself. It was transformational. It wasn't about the All-American. All, you can hang that on the wall. That gets yellow and all. But the sense that I did something that I chose to do transformed him. And his life was always going to be hard and difficult. He's an artist kind of guy, and things are always kind of... But he just has a sense, I'm going to be okay. And he just lives his life that way. It's really delightful. Okay, I'm just rambling it on, so y'all just have to tell, get me back. So my fourth point is the challenge of loss and grieving is death can appear to be the ultimate loss. Or whatever just happened. Uh, I had a friend call me one time just crying. He's, he, he lost his job. And he said, what's my wife going to think? And he just was just a loss, terrified of telling his wife. And I said, she loves you and she will support you. And he said, you're right. It's going to be okay. Now that's a good, awfully good response. But, but he just needed to remind, he called me. Why did he call me? He trusted me, I believe. He needed to be able to say, I'm terrified. I have just been told I'm not worthy. And I lost my job. And now I have to tell my wife that I am a lowly individual, unemployed. Her husband is a failure, reading into it. But when I reminded him that she loved him, it, that he, they had invested a lot. So he went on, it went on and another job came up. But at the moment he was suffering, there were no platitudes to say just being with. Especially, I think, we were talking on the phone. He called me and when, and when we first had cell phones and all, so who know, how we, that was a good connection to make. But anyway, uh, on a cell phone call, I had a moment of trust like that. So um, I found this quote on, on my... Uh, well, I won't tell you where I found it. Um, but it's by Jamie Anderson, who I looked up and couldn't find out who it was. There's a lot of Jamie Andersons in the world, but I like the quote. He said, grief, I've learned, is really just love. It's all the love you want to give, but cannot. All of that unspent love gathers in the corner of your eyes, the lump in your throat, and in the hollow part of your chest. Grief is just love with no place to go. So there's nothing wrong with grieving. It is something. So that leads to our next point. Sarah, were you going to comment? 
Uh, not on that one. Okay. Go to your next one. <laughs> okay, you're already ahead of me. All right. We're called to grieve our losses and to look squarely at what, what causes us pain. So Henry Nouwen writes, our efforts to disconnect ourselves from our own suffering end up disconnecting our suffering from God's suffering for us. The way out of our loss and hurt is in and through, not under, over, or around. We have to go through our losses. So denying and avoiding loss, denying and avoiding grief and difficulties, of whatever case, we think of death as the ultimate one, but loss is loss. What, you know, when you lose that, uh, um, that uh, balloon, whatever it is, it's a loss. We have to deal with it. A dream. A dream. Losing a dream? Yeah. Those are really hard. So only those who can face their wounded condition can be available for healing and enter a new way of living. Denial is not a means of healing from loss. Life has many disappointments, great and small. So a sense of loss, regardless of the source, sets in motion feelings of grief which need to be acknowledged and processed. Sue Adams, a good friend, uh, whose husband was a a track coach at UCSB and has assisted me for 10 years, said, denial has a long shelf life and is easily accessible. And she was quite the realist, Sue was. Um, So denial is, uh, you know, it might help for a while to get through a hard time, but ultimately we have to deal with the things that have hurt us or they go with us, and they can tend to grow. Uh, as I tell them in my health ed class, that I, my goal is for you to become a emo- more emotionally healthy person, to get the tools to do that, and that pushing down, squashing down, compressing hurts, and, and, and denying things, pushing them down, eventually stuff comes out the side. So instead of emptying your trash, it comes streaming out the side, and guess what? It might miss you, but it hits other people. And one of my... Sometimes when I'm talking with a, with a student and they're just pushing, they don't want to go there, they're pushing back, and we might have had several talks, I'll say, look, if your daughter is sitting here 20-some years from now, do you want her to be saying the same things you're saying? No. Well, then let's go. Because if you don't, they're going to be passed on. Or as Richard Rohr says, pain that is not transformed will be transmitted. And so when we look at our families and we look at society and not dealing with things head on and we go, why does this keep happening? Now there's actually a book out now about like like 5% of uh, the country's families commit some outrageous amount of the crimes. That crime runs in our families. That's how they do life. And it gets passed from one to the next. So the stoic grandmother, and you wonder why you're dealing with your parents and your aunts and uncles in the way you do, and you look back to the source, and then you look past her and say, oh, well, look what she went through. These things get passed along. So denial will not, will not resolve anything. So look into things squarely. Uh, I found this quote, uh, or this, uh, this little bit of information interesting. The Lakota Sioux, and I've read about, uh, that, that's... Uh, Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull, and they were the last fighters. They're the ones that uh, uh, 
Custer thought he had in the bag. Uh, there just happened to be 8,000 of them to his 240. Uh, bad odds. Um, <laughs> but the Lakota Sioux are, are tight much, and they felt like they were the premier Indian tribe of, uh, of anybody. They were superior to all people, not just white people, but all Indians too. They had a special thing. But this uh, quote comment said, the Lakota Sioux considered a person experiencing great loss and deep pain to be among the holy. The freeing but devastating state opens the veil between other worlds in their mind. The individual is given sacred wisdom and insight. When we're split wide open, there's nowhere left to hide. So that when we actually own our pain and go toward it, as, as awful as it might be, we're actually being exposed to something that's telling us something about ourselves. When the, when the runners hit that critical point, and I'll point it out to them, and they'll say, oh, yeah, I really thought I should go there, but I thought, what? You know, and they have their reasons why they chose not to do it. But, but they say, how did you know that? You know, it's how they moved, what happened at that moment, you can tell. And they realize it too. And they say, well, next time, will you be there? I say, well, I don't know where that moment's going to be exactly. I can't run up and down the track anymore like that. Would, and I'll look crazy. <laughs> so we are called to grieve our losses to look squarely at what causes us pain. And I think the, the scriptures, Christ is calling us to that all the time. You know, and our best example is Peter. Peter keeps making pronouncements to Jesus like, no, you're not doing that, Lord. Sorry. I don't agree. You're going to do it my way. Get behind me, Satan. He gets, Peter suffers some pretty big put-downs, knockdowns. But he keeps getting up and coming back. I'm not sure how much smart. It took him a while to get smarter. But he does. He keeps coming back because he knows he's seeing truth. But his, that personality that wants to control things or manage things or be right still pushes on him. And it took him a lot of humbling for him to get to be the Peter that uh, Jesus could depend upon. He said, I'll be able to depend upon you, but he didn't say when. So next point is, how can we learn to live this way? Of facing our pain, of going right into trouble, of confronting difficult situations, or, uh, I had a good talk about that this morning, losses of knowing I have to make this choice and it's going to be really painful. And even though it's the right choice, I am going to suffer for it. So much of life, I believe, could be made better if we were more willing to suffer the pain of making the right choice. So the example I use, when you break up with the bad boyfriend, good choice but you're going to suffer for it. You're going to feel the sense of loss. You invested in it. You wanted it to work, and it's not working, and so you walk away. It's the right thing. Don't look back, but you're going to cry. You're going to hurt. You're going to suffer because it's a loss, even though it's the right choice, and that's, you know, on a dating type situation, that's pretty mild by life's choices, but we have to be willing to make those choices. And it's the sense, what if, it's like the athletes at the critical point, go, 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 and they don't go. And, uh, 
uh, and I have to compose myself because of what I want to say to them then. Because uh, it's so frustrating. They won't risk it. And they have their reasons. I'll look back. If I die at the end, I said, I've never gone to a funeral at the end of a race. You are not going to die. But they feel like at that moment they will. Or I will look bad. What if I lose to so-and-so? If I just give up, they don't admit this until later, if I just give up and I lose to that person I'm afraid to lose to, I can just go, oh, I had a bad day, you know, couldn't do it, had a late lunch, I felt something in my leg. And I've had athletes tell me, and I lied to you, I lied. I didn't want to accept the fact that I gave in. Okay, that's the critical point in the race. And I had one athlete one time that at that uh, 200 meters to go and the 800 meters, and I felt like she was going to make a breakthrough one day. And I was at the conference meet, it was her junior year, and I said, Go now! And I was just right there, just yelling. And she ran a personal best, got second in the conference meet, and the next year she set the school record. And I wasn't there to yell, she just went. One of my favorite moments of my coaching career when I was all the way on the other side, 250-meter mark at Pomona Pitzer, and she just went by herself. Nobody else around. She just went and set the school record. But after that race, when she, when she went, because I told her, she said, I just said, okay, coach, whatever, I'll try it. And she found out she wouldn't die. Okay? And so sometimes, that's why community, mentoring, friendships, family, can help so much to give the encouragement of that moment, the hug, you can do it and make it work. Yes, Sarah. Russell, you mentioned two things that I was thinking about. One is you have to know who you are, but sometimes who you are isn't as relevant as Well, we prepare, and, and again, we, we live lost like we tend to live our daily lives. Allison, we talked about it, and, and she reminded me, I stayed away from Melissa's room more than I was in it. It was, I, it was hard. I worked right outside her window. I dug in hard, rocky dirt and was doing something. Uh, she wanted, Alyssa wanted grass in the backyard. This was before, you know, was, and so I went to work trying to put grass in the backyard and fixing things. And I, it was 90s, and I worked hard out there. That's what was my grieving, was just pounding dirt. Close by, but sitting with her was just really hard. Allison sat with her a lot and did the things that needed to be done. And I supported, but it just, I, so that preparedness, I wasn't prepared because I couldn't get myself to quite lean into it fully. Um, so part of that's personality, uh, and yeah, whatever it was, it was a hard time, and it was unexpected, and um, 
So was I prepared? I was prepared as best I could be at that point. But emotionally, I hadn't dealt with it. That's why I think when Nancy said, it's time, and I felt like I was walking backwards because I probably was, I just was kind of in denial, not wanting that moment to come. And I don't fault myself for it as much as just realize I would like to have done better, but I don't know what I could have done. Is accepting another word for preparing? You know, like in the critical point of the race, if, if runners start the race accepting the fact it's going to be hard, they do better. If they do it by they're going, oh, I don't know, and they have, you know, they don't get on the line, they're, they're not sure, it gets really hard. And when, it, when that push comes to shove, they can't quite push through it. So, yeah, uh, just accepting it. Accepting, I mean, acceptance does help us a lot. It's going to be hard. Life is going to be hard. It's, we shouldn't be surprised by suffering. And, I, and I've been on a, kind of a theme with our team this year, uh, and, I, and I, I shared it again, this, that we are insulated from suffering as well as any people who have ever lived on the earth. We can buy things, get things, get people to do things for us that we don't have to suffer. I don't have to dig a trench to put in my uh, sewer line. I have a sewer line. Um, you know, I, I, I over-dramatize sometimes, and, you know, and we're suffering, and we go, oh, Lord, help me, I have three exams today. <laughs> I'm like, really? Yeah. I, I just go, Ukraine? Yeah. Three exams? Yeah. Remember, folks, we chose this. We chose to come to the college. We chose to be a student. Don't act like someone did something to you. I met a woman who recently moved in where I live in senior housing. And then I saw her outside one day when I walked out. This has been about two weeks ago. And I, hi, Nancy, glad to see you. And her neighbor was with her. And I said, my daughter's going to be from Montana. I'm really excited about that. She said, oh, you're so lucky to have a daughter. Mm. My daughter died in a tsunami in Japan. Mm. And then she went on to say, my son also died. I think it was in a plane. I was so shocked at the first that I didn't get all of it. Mm-hmm. And all I could say was, oh, I'm so sorry, Nikki. I'm so sorry mm-hmm. for your loss. You know. And then Walt was a neighbor and he patted her and he said, But Missy's a strong woman. Mm-hmm. She, she's like 92. Oh. Mm-hmm. You know, well, she's had to be strong to get through that. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. Uh, so lear- learning to live this way and leaning into loss, uh, leaning into our death, it's hard work. And uh, I look at my coaching and teaching as preparing students to be able to start to grow. Uh, that my health ed class about once you become an emotionally healthy person, so when you're in the classroom, you're not taking out your stuff as you get tired as the semester goes on on them because you don't know how to take care of yourself. You think it's that they're making you mad, or they're ma- no. You you got to you have to be equitable with them, and it's hard work. And so, how do we take care of ourselves? And I don't mean that in the, that we're all pull you up by the bootstraps and ignore things. I'm talking exactly the opposite of having the resources and the people and the means uh, to take care of yourself. But with the team, I'm saying we live in a very insulated life. Suffering is different than it is in most of the world because we have so much to protect us. 
And so we can actually, so uh, that example I gave at the start of class, we can think that being mocked, uh, Christianity being mocked, is suffering. When it's just painful or ugly, but did we suffer? Did we lose anything? Not necessarily, unless it just we just have our soul attached to something that's um, that's superfluous, possibly. So anyway, I'm, I'm just pushing on on our students not to be uh, independent and uh, uh, without a, without need, but that know who you are and how to deal with you. As long, and I think if we don't try to fix it, we just get perspective so they can think about it. Uh, especially with the young men I work with, I said, when they have ears to hear, and so I'll just present them things, and then I go, never mind. Uh, no, they didn't hear that. They, didn't, they just ignored me. So at some point, they have ears to hear, and it's amazing what they start to comprehend, especially if I'm consistent uh, overall. But beating them over the head and saying, you're going to do this or that or the other, I do have one guy, I did say, no, I won't say that. No, um, he kept telling me he's sick. He says, I always get sick this time of year. I said, well, what happens this time of year? Championship time. And you get sick every, time, every year this time? I don't think so. I think you're nervous. And then I walked around with a stick the other day, and I said, if you're sick, I'm going to knock the snot out of you. <laughs> so not literally, but just you know, get them to laugh a little bit, go, okay, I'm being silly about this. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's really true. Yeah. Uh, it's really true. <laughs> so much so much that goes I The two weeks before Nationals and before conference is like the worst coaching time. I can't do anything. I can't protect them from the germs in the, in the dorm. I can't protect them from their fears and doubts and everything they brought with them. I just can always keep being positive. You can do it. You can do it. And they, they, they look at me smiling, basically, and say, no, I can't. <laughs> they don't say it literally, but you can see. They think, I can't do it. And they get in the race and go, oh, I don't know what happened to me. I said, well, we did talk about that. Um, ultimately, mourning means facing what wounds us in the presence of the one, Christ, who can heal. Facing the wounds. I think it's one of the hardest things in our human lives is to face our wounds. And I think, you know, we look at the meta picture now in our country, and there's a lot of fear about facing hard things. Don't say those hard things. It makes me feel bad. How dare you bring up something that I didn't do? But there's something there that just needs to be spoken, not for me, 
but for the people who suffered. There's wounds that go back generations. You know, the, the Lakota Sioux still won't accept the money for the Black Hills. It's their sacred ground. They have never, it's up to a lot of money now. They refuse it because they said, we never ceded it. That you offered us money, we didn't take it, we said it's ours, and you took it anyway. We're not taking your money and saying it was okay. And they, for genera- they will never accept that. They will keep on, that's just their, who they are as a people. We are not going to accept what has happened to us and not going to make you feel better by taking your money. So, how do we do this better? Gratitude. Gratitude, in its deepest sense, means to live life as a gift to be received thankfully. And often Viktor Frankl is quoted uh, here, who was a concentration camp survivor, who classically said, uh, they can take away everything but how I respond. I choose how I'm going to respond to the evil that was done to me. I won't be evil because evil. I won't say, well, they did it, I can do this. He, he rose above it. And it's, it's been a, uh, an immense um, positive person for what he suffered and what his family and people suffered. And maybe in this vein, I was thinking, if we can get hopefully the best perspective on all the difficulties we have to face, there's probably a lot coming up the road. Um, we change places. And and that's what now I keep talking about. Our life, our death should be a gift to other people. Now, if you want to see perfect endings, watch the latest Downton movie, Downton Abbey movie. Everything works out. It's great. Privilege has its, you know, has its perks. It's really fun. Uh, And so you should watch. It's a very fun movie, a good tie up to the whole thing. But they keep working things out. But gratitude, having a sense of gratitude, the ability to say, thank you, God, that I'm alive, and whatever, might help. Yeah? Do you ever encounter someone who um, has not denied their pain, but has moved into it, but remains kind of stuck there, and is not able to um, get healed? I mean, an example I will have athletes who are very talented, who are anxious people, and who bring in anxious by nature, but also made anxious by circumstances of their life or their family, whatever. And they have a good workout, they have a good race, and they go, yeah, but. And then they say all the ways that it could go wrong or why it won't happen again or I can't do that again because they have become conditioned that they are going to fail. And that they're not worthy, you know, they didn't deserve it. It was just, it was just an accident. It was just, it, you know, I don't know how that happened, but it just happened. And that's, it is really, really hard to get them past that. 
I almost want to turn the question on you and say, have I met anybody who's actually worked through their stuff? Uh, that's sometimes more, less likely, because we can only go, go so far. And so, yeah, the kind of reviewing and b being a victim of my circumstance and talking about that over and over in circular form, I do meet people like that, and it's really hard to throw something in the flywheel and stop the flywheel and that they would, you know, not just run away and never talk to you again. Um, and so we just get, you pray and don't get caught up in their negativity. And if they want to talk with you and they want to do it, you, you seize that opportunity to listen and give feedback. But until they want to change it, until they want it to be different or have a sense that it could be different, it's really hard. And I'm not a counselor, I'm not a trained counselor uh, by any means, but it's just mostly my experience of working with college students and have a bit of perception about how people are doing uh, of asking questions and checking in with them to try to set them on a different path if they can just to see that you know it's uh, they're going in a uh, roundabout and they keep changing lanes but they still keep going in a roundabout and they go past they keep going past that turn off and go I missed it again and they go by and then they kind of blank out for a few turns and oh I just missed it again and you say Okay, next time I'm going to stand here in the road and I'm going to point to that way and you get run over <laughs> because they just don't know how to get off of it and get, go somewhere else. And it, it's prayer and just being a consistent person in your life. And isn't yeah. that yeah. at the moment that, or at least, you know, as a pastor, if someone keeps going around in a circle, going around in a circle and talking it through or praying it through, then you probably would want That um, Bernay Brown's comment was, uh, people are doing the best they can do. And she said, I hate that comment. Uh, even though she believes it, she said, it's so hard. And uh, I, I quoted that on my Facebook. I put things I like on there that uh, aren't my sayings. And a friend of mine who's a very driven coach said, Russ, that's a really hard one. Because he was a pusher. You're going to run faster. You're going to throw hard. You know, that's like that all the time. And uh, he couldn't accept not doing better. And so to say they're doing the best they can, and so today, in the situation of going in a circle, they're doing the best they can do. So I don't need to judge them. I might be frustrated with them, but not judge their, where they're at as much as just waiting for the opening when they maybe see the exit, but they're on the inside lane, and you don't want them to cut across there, but you say, when you come around next time, keep going off to the right and come off here. Because it's a process. That's just Judy. When I was a young Christian, I called my Bible study teacher, and she asked me, "How are you?" And I said, "Well, under the circumstances," and I never got any farther. <laughs> she stopped me and said, "What are you doing under the circumstances? Get back under the cross." <laughs> and it's what I needed because I was in my pity pot, mm. and she knew it. And that's what it takes. It takes getting back under the cross mm. in community with people that love you and will tell you the truth. 
So the Downton Abbey movie is worth watching just for that moment when that actually comes up and, and a person's met face to face. You'll know it when you hear it later in the movie. Um, yeah, Travis. Riffing on this idea, Chandra, even the idea you brought in of like dealing with your grief and getting caught in it, I think it's interesting to use the roundabout idea. I think it gets to the space where you outside can see here is this this turnoff. This is your turn. Life is this way. And to the person, you know, where psychology comes in, that roundabout becomes a space where you're in it and you're like, this is my roundabout. There's no other, there's no, this is it. This is a circle. There's no road. There's no, there's no leaving this, this is where I'm at, this is my life narrative, this is my grief, I'm bitter toward the world, this is me, and the, you know, the, the going, getting therapy, working through it, starting to maybe see that there is another road, and then the faithful friends, Dad, I've seen you do this my entire life, showing up consistently, loving people, giving space, to then be the trusted person, for them to hear yeah, maybe that is a road, and then it's the the pain that's not transformed is transmitted. The, the pain that's not transformed is held onto and believed in a belief system. So then the breaking down of that belief system, where God lends a hand and says, let me, let me pull you to this road, and I'll be with you. You won't be alone. This isn't your landing space. This isn't your circle. Like, I have life for you. And that whole idea of that progression of getting out of that circle, which can be Yeah, we can be pretty oblivious to our circle. Uh, when I was in eighth grade, I was in the band, uh, and we came from Virginia to California for the Turner Rose Parade, and we went to Disneyland. Like, uh, from the farm to Disneyland, it's like overwhelming. And Williana Poole, a girl, wanted to walk with me and hold my hand. And I didn't know what to do, so I held her hand. And so we were at like the um, small world area, just walking in a circle. I didn't know there was any, any other place. Except I was just wandering around. Like, what do I do? What do I do? I'm not having any fun. I lost my ticket to the Mat Mat uh, Matterhorn. Like, ugh. And so as an eighth grader, I was oblivious to anything else around me except this thing happening to me uh, that uh, this girl liked me and was holding my hand. And I was like, what do I do with that? Uh, definitely don't go on small world. Uh, <laughs> So, but like, but as adults, we can do the same thing. We can be stuck and not notice anything else out there because our reality is just this. And so that's where education, community, church, extended friendships exposed us to other things and other ways of thinking and doing that let us consider that we're trapped by our pain and sense of loss and I've got to do something about this. And sometimes it's as easy as a conversation. I mean, we just had a student who can't, his situation can't change, and he had to leave school. It wasn't his fault, but his circumstances didn't allow him to stay in school. And it was sad, because he's trying so hard, he was doing the best he could do, but his best didn't go well with what was going on. And his mom had to come and take him home. And he told me, he said, I know I may need to withdraw, but if I withdraw, this is my last chance at a four-year education. So circumstances, I mean, it just was really hard.
So, for ourselves. Okay, so last, so gratitude, and then the last thing. One of life's great questions centers not on what happens to us, but rather how we will live in and through whatever happens. So, suffering is not, should not be a surprise to us. So, the American life allows us to avoid a lot of suffering. And we start to think, got this, under control. And denial becomes our way of life. So, uh, realize what it is that's going on to us and be prepared for going through the difficulties that will come up, because they will. And being with people who do that. Question, do you think the earlier generations, like the silent generation and the great generation, they, they were taught to be quiet and not talk about this thing? Do you think we're recipients of that? Because I, I feel... I feel like I got it, you know, and I, I, my mother was that way, my father was that way, and so it's a whole, so it was a whole new ballgame for me. That's a whole nother class. Yeah. Uh, so the, one of the books on my list is, I think I put up Try Softer, read that one. Family of origin stuff does have its effects. And I think, so like they talk about the 50s being boring and not real. Think about it, four and a half million men came back from the war. And they said, be quiet. I just want to be quiet. Don't make any noise. I'm going to work, come home, give me my whatever, and just be quiet. I don't blame them for feeling that way. But it created a whole generation of things. So yeah, there's stuff there. And so we have to work out our little T traumas, big T traumas, but a lot of little T traumas are from our family of origin. None of us are exempt. And so it's that, that growing up stuff through our 20s that, that's up to do it. Okay, I've exhausted my time. And uh, so thank you all for being with me in that. Um,